Awesome. We're live. Yes, we are live. Welcome to the Tribe of Change podcast. I am your host today, Steve Stone, and I am sitting here with Emma Dagnon in Amsterdam, uh, all the way over there. She is a life catalyst, lifestyle catalyst, and we're going to find out what the heck that is. So, (laughs) hi, Emma. Um, Hey there. How are you? a little bit. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, you've been a part of the tribe for a little while. Tell us how you found the tribe um, and what, what kept you connected and, and why you uh, you like it. Or I'm assuming you like it because you're still part of it. So, yeah, yeah listen. Funny, right? Um, okay, so Lifestyle Catalyst. Wow. Um, I think what really triggered that name was doing a lot of transformation work. Probably say a lot of coaching work, a lot of mentoring, a lot of teaching yoga. And every person I spoke to after they'd leave my class, like a lot of them would be like, oh my God, you're, you're not even a mentor. You're not even a coach. You're a catalyst. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. But I got really present to that part of it. A bit like Adam says, he has this kick your door down psychology. I think that's what he says. It's a bit of the same way when I, when I talk to people or when I work with clients or I teach yoga I'm a bit in your face, so I'm a bit, I guess, not your normal mainstream sort of style of teaching, but with that comes along like a chemical reaction. Either people will resonate with me or they won't, and that's okay. You know, it's it's completely easy. You know, I don't take it personally. Um, It's something that I recognize that those that are open for the transformation, they'll approach it, they'll embrace it, and those that aren't will just, you know, they'll go along their path, and maybe they'll come back, maybe they won't. But the catalyst itself is when you create a chemical reaction. So for me, it's when those people get that sort of weird feeling inside that they either want to run out of my class or they want to stay there. You know, that's where it comes from. Um, I found the Tribe of Change through Adam Lowry. And ironically, after reading uh, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel's book, Stealing Fire. So I actually attended the first uh, premier uh, course of the Flow Genome Project. And shockingly enough, I was pretty impressed. I landed number two uh, in completing that course. So I was naturally hacking flow state just by who I was being and how I was living my life, which I really never even thought about it to that level. But I was pretty impressed when I saw that I ended at number two. It was pretty, pretty humbling. Um, And then I just started, I just started reading a lot of the post and listening to Adam go on his rampages and that I just stuck around. I just kept on listening and, you know, reading what the tribe had to share and just really seeing where we all have relatable things that we want to talk about. Sometimes it's harder for some, easier for others. So I thought, hey, you know, let me, uh, let me reach out and let me take a leap of faith and get on the Tribe of Change podcast. Well, I'm glad you're here and uh, the tribe's glad you're here. Uh, we love everybody in the tribe and uh, glad to, to be actually doing episode two now and uh, glad that you can be a part of it. We've had quite a few We've had a couple of conversations. We've had quite a few conversations a couple of times. Yeah. Um, but so tell, tell, tell us about how you got to be who you are, where you are. Um, how do you end up in Amsterdam? Um, how, do you, how do you become uh, a lifestyle catalyst? You know, what, what path brought you to where you are today? Wow, well, that's a fairly loaded question, but I think it's always one that's on the mind of everyone, especially, you know, being overseas. 
with the current state of conditions today, people are like, oh my God, you know, you're American or whatever the case may be. But yeah, because a lot of people might not know, but you're not actually from Amsterdam. No, I'm from New York City. So I'm from the US. Um, The leap of faith I took was when my father, two weeks before my father passed away from cancer, um, I had a bit of a breakthrough, recognizing that much of how I interacted with him when I was younger was really sort of not very empathetic, not very kind. So when he was dying, I had an opportunity to complete with him and, you know, really just thank him for what he did because he did the best that he could with what he had available to him. Like Adam talks about this a lot. You know, we, we can only do what we know and what we're willing to, you know, do the work, get into the muck and sort of come, you know, like Phoenix rising, come up from the ashes. Right. Mm. So coming from a Hispanic family and being the eldest daughter, it was expected that I probably would have been the one to take care of my, my mother or my family when, if, when and if someone got married or whatever. So when my father passed away, I was like, no, I'm, that's not the life I see for myself. And it was difficult. Um, it was leaving behind a lot of friends that I grew up with. It was also exciting and exhilarating to... You were living in New York at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. living in New York City. How old were you at that point? Wow, we're just going to go straight into age, aren't we? Age is but a number, don't you know this? It is, but it may... <laughs> no, how, no, actually... How long, how long ago was it then? How, how about that? Uh, almost, uh, what are we in? Two thousand eight years ago. It'll be eight years ago. Um, so it was 2000, that was uh, 2009. Did you find it difficult to leave New York? So let's go a little bit into that, which is really interesting. I have been a consultant for the last 15 years or so, working with technology and software and um, change management and global implementations. So I was already, um, I'm sure everyone in the tribe knows the film Up in the Air with George Clooney. That was a bit of my life for probably the the most recent, the 10 years before I left the U.S., which was basically I was up, down, up, down on a plane Monday through Thursday, consulting, contracting. And I worked in probably about 40, 41 states and freelanced as well in in North America. Um, Have also worked in India. I've also worked in Australia. So I was already doing this sort of road warrior, spiritual warrior mix of all the travel that I was doing, which... As much as people may think that's glamorous, it's not. It's really, really not. And so I was already moving around a lot. And I think after my father passed away, I was just like, look, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this now. And I just took a huge leap of faith and said, I'm going to go. And, you know, Adam talks about, um, you know, the neurological components of the brain, you know, how the brain functions. And... I could take a little tidbit of that simply because we have a choice on how we want to perceive things. We could perceive it as an obstacle, perceive it as a, as an opportunity. Um, and I think what happened then was I was doing a lot of um, self-development work and personal development work around landmark worldwide, which is the, before it was landmark, it was est. So it is where Tony Robbins um, came from, you know, back in the day of his infomercials. Also it's where Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel speak about this in the book, Stealing Fire. So there's a really interesting component to it because it was actually after one of the advanced seminars that I created the possibility to just 
make London happen. And I moved to London and the universe, um, the universe just went in my favor and I got my permit. Like it was, uh, it was applied for and I got like my permit to go to the UK to work. And that was so hard to come by. So as a result, I just took a leap of faith and went. And, you know, it was in the UK where I felt it the hardest being away from New York when I was in London. Um, and the reason I, I share, I felt it the hardest. It's because it was, it was a culture shock for me mm-hmm. because I don't drink. Um, it's not, I, I'm into fitness and functional movement and hacking, biohacking and epigenetics and all of that really yummy stuff. So for me, being in London where everyone was celebrating and going out to work at 4.45 and having a beer at the pub like five nights a week and then on the weekends kind of getting pissed, it just wasn't my scene. And when I was there, we had the largest blizzard in history for London. So basically the whole town, the whole London, about 80% of it shut down, including the railways, including the buses. So unless you had like a close network of friends, which is quite a challenge to make in London, mm-hmm. you were on your own. You were isolated. You were sitting in your house or, or just in a local pub, either getting pissed if that was your thing, or really just you know, pretty much fermenting in your own inner work, right? Because most of us leave in some of us leave because of escapism, right? Some of us will leave because they want to escape something that they're unhappy with, but that always follows you. It doesn't matter. You always have to look at that in the eye and it's, it's not a pleasant to you all the time, but it's something that you do. So when I was over there, it was where I saw some of my, you know, some of the darker sides and it it, it really came to surface. And when I got on the verge of actually seeing how people could want to commit suicide, it was when I knew I needed to leave. I knew I needed to take another change because it wasn't, it was, it was more toxic and more detrimental to my mental health than to stay there. So I uh, picked up and I came back to the U S and then I did, uh, you know, and then I just kind of came back, but I did, but then I still wasn't settled. And then I went to Canada for a little bit and it was lovely. Did some work over there. It was fantastic, super cold, but amazing. Canada is beautiful. And then I still wasn't settled. <laughs> Something inside was still drawing me back. And I still had some time left to get back to London. So I did. I went back to London. And then again, I said, you know, I got to take massive action. Either I'm going to go stay in London and make a go of it. Or I'm going to head back to the United States permanently. Or I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to go back, take a higher degree. So it was at that point I did some research and, you know, there's always, you know, the potential of a love interest that was somewhere in that all mm-hmm. um, who happened to be Dutch, <laughs> but uh, he, en- he encouraged me and en- gave me a really interesting perspective on Netherlands. And it made me consider going, doing my MBA there. And actually I did. So I left London in 2009 to go to 2010 to do my MBA in 2011 in, in Netherlands, outside of uh, about 30 minutes outside of Amsterdam. And then I just stayed. So I didn't leave. I, I didn't leave mainly because it's a bit like sibling cities, right? New Amsterdam, New York City, old Amsterdam, New Amsterdam. So there was a lot of similarities. And for me, it was a bit of nostalgia because there's a beauty of New York City that a lot of people that they don't see it now because it's gone. But 
it, it was such a, it is such a beautiful, amazing city worldwide for everyone. People see the U.S., and no matter where you go in the world, they will always have a warm spot in their heart the minute you mention New York City because it is such the most diverse city you could find in the U.S. And, you know, it was really, it was warming to hear that. But it also you saw a lot of the similarities of, like, the Dutch culture and the Dutch system. You see it in New York. So it was really an eye-opener. And I just kept on diving deep, 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 deep. And because I was teaching yoga alongside of this path of consulting in technology and business, I started to build my life around creating transformation and working with transformation in people's lives, right? Because as an expat, I have lived and am living outside of the United States. So it's an, it's an interesting one because you start to look at how certain elements will show up that might not be there if you're just visiting, you know, and then you really have to go back into that space and sort it out. So the lifestyle catalyst came from that because when you have a lifestyle catalyst position, you actually have to look at all facets of your life interchangeably working like a well-oiled machine, right? So it's relationships, it's finances, it's contribution, it's your spiritual connection. Um, you know, what else? It's, it's, it's how you, what, what's your mission? You know, we talk about purpose, but we talked a little bit about purpose before, but what really drives you? Like, what are your, what are the elements that you love? And for me, I've always had a penchant for traveling and I've been doing it since college. So, and it was very, uh, you know, hashtag single girl travel. You know, I travel everywhere I go by myself. So there's a part of it where it's something that I found I needed to do for myself and also for the inner work, like spiritually as well. I'm quite spiritual. And I've had some incidences in my life that have really pushed that envelope of faith, spirituality, neuroscience, um, quantum mechanics, quantum physics. So it's really definitely made me sort of take that into consideration with the things that I do and the choices that I make and just follow that a bit more than what maybe someone else would do. So I, it's a bit like Forrest Gump. I just keep on going, you know? So for those of us, we, t- we chatted about this before where some people get um, paralysis by analysis. Some people will think too much and then it thwarts them in their ability to move forward because it's as if like Bruce Lipton would say, or Dr. Joe Dispenza would say, it's like, there's a lion that's going to come jump on you from behind the bushes. People really get into that fear state that it's like inauthentic. Unless someone's holding a gun to your head, it's inauthentic. So people that have this fear, I'm not minimizing your feeling. Not at all. But it's what we chatted about before. Where is it coming from? Where is that? What's driving that? What belief system inside you is making you get scared for something that really, where is the fear coming from? It's being manifested from a different place. Because no one's, you know, when I was in Landmark for the many years, because I've been around the work for a long time, They always used to have this saying, which I really regarded, which is, you know, fear is inauthentic. So unless your life is physically being threatened, it's completely, we are the only species that could create that, that, uh, that, that freak out mechanism, as I like to call it sometimes. We're the only ones that can You, you froze up for a second. You, you said, um, as a species, that's the last part that uh, came through. So. 
you were talking we're about fear only, and then you yeah human the human beings are the only ones that could create stress even when it's not there and we're the only ones that could create it so it's a bit like it's like worrying about getting a job or not getting a job, right? You mm -hmm. have the person that worries about getting a job because they're seeing everything that would happen if they don't get the job. They, they, yeah. they, they start to worry about money. They, start to, they spiral it downwards to everything that they would think about that's negative, mind you. It's not even positive. It's negative. Because they can also well, look at it like... You did mention... Earlier, you mentioned that uh, people escape, mm -hmm. and then you had mentioned um, how you had you had you had to get out of London. So yeah, totally. there is an aspect where you can take fear, and either it can debilitate you or it can motivate you to do something different. So fear can be a tool if if you haven't learned how to eliminate it. Uh, by the rational and irrational fears. Mm -hmm. um, but like you said, if you're about to lose your job, you can either change what you're doing or, you know, learn from it or be in fear that it is or isn't going to happen and do nothing. So I think that's the irrational part of it. If you do nothing about it, then there's and, fear to begin with. And it's also really fascinating because you have a lot of people that will automatically think that women are irrational in their thinking. But I would probably say that men are too, because the irrationality of what you just described, like how they will align themselves with their work or their profession or their, their, their prowess by being an athletic person or a business person or a startup person, the irrationality of their fear of what may happen if they don't have that. The only level they're going to go is up to 50, but yet they're trying to do high performance up to a, a thousand. But let's be realistic. What are you going to do? Drive yourself absolutely bonkers and mad because you can't hit a thousand? You're making yourself sick. When mm -hmm. in reality, acceptance of where you are can actually be surprisingly pleasant, but it also could bring you up to a thousand. But when you allow it to unfold as it, as it should without expecting certainty to go your way. Or, you know, because we have a lot of control freaks, right? You know, I'm a, you know I could be a recovering type A every now and then. But this is where the lifestyle catalyst kind of comes into play. I just have, you know, it's, you get to a certain point where you, you have a lesser tolerance for bullshit. And you have a lesser tolerance for people that are wanting to live champagne dreams on beer pockets. Then you have yeah. the other side of it, that you have people that have champagne dreams and they want it on beer pockets. Or they want the champagne dreams on champagne pockets, but they don't want to work for the champagne pockets. You know, because we, we have forgotten what it's like to work. We have forgot, we've had a society that has things quite easy. We talked about this before and I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not minimizing it in any way, but like generation X went through a recession. I mean, we went through difficult times, but you know, we're going to go through difficult, difficult times again, but how you choose to manage those difficult times, you could look at them as negative or you could look at them as an opportunity for growth and transformation. It's, it's yeah. a choice that we make. So when I see so many people that are following, you know, sort of, you know, being a yoga teacher as well, I see a lot of the Instagram yoga teachers, you know, and, and when I call them Instagram yoga teachers, it's because there's so many amazing yoga teachers that have been around for so many years. 
And many of them are now kind of pulling out of the system, right? They're pulling out and they're making their, themselves go somewhere else simply because we now have a society that is now thinking that the yoga classes that are the ones they need to try are the ones that are being toted by Lululemon sponsored uh, yoga teachers that are on Instagram that are increasing their followers by how many, you know, how many selfies could I post about perfect postures? You know, but the reality is, is that's not what yoga is. There's a hell of a lot of yoga that comes from off the mat. And, you know, you can sit there and go down this path. But then again, it goes back to which choice do you take? Do you take the red pill or the blue pill? You know, it, it mm-hmm. goes right back to that, that adage, you know, like escapism is a, is a psychological term. It's a therapist term, escapism. When people will sit and, um, and kind of want to use something as a vehicle to have to escape what is happening in the moment. And, you know, it happens with alcohol. It happens with drugs. It happens with sex. It happens with um, party going, um, club going, travel, festivals, you know, you name it. TV. Uh, movies, films, but let's be realistic. All of that's programming, all of it. So you're just going from one type of programming to another. And having come from an industry of marketing and advertising, oh, I mean, let's be realistic. It's all programming. Well, you said you worked in that field, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I used to work for Fox, Fox Sports, Fox News. You know, so so, I mean... What would it be... What would they ask you to do? What would your... Because we know marketing advertising, but really there's a psychology behind that as well. What What is it that you were, you know, what were you asked to do, I guess, is, is well, the we question. Were, we, were, we were in a, the tech department, so we were in the IT department. But I think a lot of what our team did and was responsible for was really sort of mitigating the traffic that was coming in and sort of recognizing and basically sniffing the traffic sniffing the traffic for information, which in this case, you know, obviously it's data privacy, right? So if you sniff enough information, you could neurologically sell someone a product. It's neuromarketing. The United States is number one in the world in neuromarketing. You know, you you see it. Uh, Here's a perfect example in the yoga world, Lululemon. Lululemon, the, the clothing. It's a perfect example. When you start to look at the pants and the construction and how they're like $110, $120, but yet they're selling like hotcakes, you're kind of like, oh, my God, why? Because you're, you're manipulating the message that they have to have these pants in order to practice yoga, to be part of the entitled crew of yogis, like those that will practice. I mean, I think you're uh, breaking up just a little bit again, but uh, it's a bit, it's a bit like most of what you said. Yeah. Because you could also take Adidas. You could take any of the major brands like Nike. You could take any of the major brands and you'll see it because you, you'll see it by how people shop and how people are programmed to buy it. Can you justify $300 on a sneaker? I can't. I can't either, but think about it. I can't even, I'm a yoga teacher for so long now. I can't justify spending 110 on a pair of uh, yoga pants. I can't justify that. We don't, we don't even make do they, that much. Do they, do they last longer than a $20 pair of yoga? I don't know how much yoga pants cost. No. So, so an, interesting, an interesting sidebar note is my degree is in fashion and merchandising and production. So... 
having worked for a major global American brand for a long time, which had extensive preeminent customer service and product high quality, outstanding to be exact, I wouldn't, I still to this date have a pair, a pair of them, a pair of the pants. And mind you, it's over 15 years. That's I think uh, I think I lost some of your audio there. You said last thing I heard was um, to this day. To this day, I still um, I still have the pants. To this day, about fifteen years later, I still have the pants. Meaning they're still yep. functional. You have which pants? Well, I didn't give the name of the brand, but it is Levi Strauss. So it's uh, they're fantastic. Uh, they were they're an amazing company. Um, they truly put their their mission behind their products and. Their main effort was preeminent customer service and extremely high quality denim. And that is what they stood for. And their pants were meant to last a long time because that is what denim does. But now with fast fashion, that's not the case, but that's also polluting our environment. So we're, we're trading off cheap wear and we're getting a cheap product, but at the cost of what? the consequence of trashing the environment. You know, we could go down, look at the climate, look at, you know, people will argue about Irma, but come on, really? Scientists haven't even seen three hurricanes in a row like what they've seen now. These three hurricanes are going to come back to back. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's unprecedented what's happening, but if you have, um, you know, and this is why I love Adam because each one of these things are interconnected. If you have people that are just shopping and not consciously shopping and not being aware of anything, then what the hell are you going to expect to happen? You know, you have to recognize that even in our shopping and our consumer habits, we're impacting people. If we continue to shop and we continue to go down those rabbit holes, consumerism is one of the biggest things that's going to probably take us off this earth. Well, you can only take so much before uh, it's gone. Of course. Well, you do. Well, you know, it's about like, it's one of my favorite sayings. You could only fish in the same pond so many times before you overfish the pond and there won't be any fish left. It's the same thing with business. If you have an oversaturation of a certain type of business in a certain area, move out of the area to do the business. Don't stay in that area because that already is telling you that everyone else doesn't want to move. But if you move, you might actually make a success by getting out. So when you, so taking it back to the leaving New York, there goes your answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, there and, goes your answer. But that's that's a a whole new conversation that uh, makes it for the technology industry, like with computers and apps and social media and all these other things. Is that you can have an online business and literally you could actually make a successful business going to the worst of places. True. Like um, yeah. all those, like Chicago and how everything in the economy is bad. If, if you took your business and moved to one of those places where they're giving you incentives to, to start businesses mm-hmm. there and yours is a tech company or an online company, mm-hmm. I mean, granted, you still have to live in Chicago, but. You'd still be making more. You'd still benefit. Yeah. Your return on investment would be by far. Well, here goes the next piece because I wanted I, do you want a better quality of life or do you want to be run by the machine? 
I think that's the better one. Do you want to be plugged in where someone runs your life? Time is my most valuable resource. Whoever, whoever and whatever I spend my time on, they, they are my inner circle. That is my innermost that I hold close. Why? Because time is my most valuable resource. If I spend my time on you, there is a major, major reason why I'm doing it. Because my time is super valuable. So you, you stepped out of the, the corporate world uh-huh. and you, you do yoga, life catalyst, lifestyle catalyst. Um, yeah. Being a lifestyle catalyst mm-hmm. compared to what you did before. Yeah. And I think part of what made, inspired me to go down that path is the fact that I work with a, I worked with a lot of consultants, like I said, the technology industry, right? In startups, you know, they're going to get burnt out faster than anyone. They're already getting burned out in Silicon Valley. They're going to get burnt out faster than anyone because they're being pushed so much to develop these applications, to develop these, to reach these deadlines, to reach these milestone deliverables that are almost psychotic and, you know, they too are going to be needing somewhere where they could at least decompress and get a little bit of a brain relaxation so they could go back in and continue that work. Because if you don't let the brain slow down, it's, it's, a, it's capability of critical thinking diminishes because it's too stressed. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like too tangled up. That's why meditation is such a popular thing these days. Because if you even sit for five, ten... I actually... You lose me. I actually uh, lost you there. The uh, the video kept skipping. So, at what point could you repeat that? I don't know if anybody. I don't know if the video caught it or whatever. But uh, give that one more shot of the difference that you just talked about. Yeah, what I what I was describing was is that the individuals who need it the most right now are those individuals that are coming from the same place I've worked in, which is technology consulting. Why? Because they're the ones that are going to struggle the most because they have high deliverables. It's a very extremely competitive industry and they're developing at a very fast rate. Technology is moving quite quick. So they have to really be quick on the fly. So Silicon Valley is really getting really present to recognizing the art of living and the meditations that are coming out of that mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn. It's really getting present to that. The one danger that I see there is having been taught meditation myself by teachers and being in, having lived in an ashram for a few months in Canada to teach meditation and mindfulness. You're separating the Buddhism component of it, which has a, a strong a strong thread to spirituality. So if you take that out of it, you actually someone could actually go crazy sitting in their own thoughts. So we don't normally teach it without the context of having that piece in it because the mind is so sharp, it can go crazy. So someone meditating mm-hmm. too much can actually crack if it's not done with the proper guidance and the proper education around it. And, you know, you have such a, you have such a society today that just doesn't give a shit. They like, Oh, well, I just want the fast, quick, easy, cheap. 
And fast, quick, easy, cheap isn't going to get you good stuff. You know, I worked in fashion. If you want quality, you have to pay for quality. If you want outstanding, you have to pay for outstanding. If you want, if you don't give a shit, then that's fine. But I would not ever put my health in the hands of something that's crap. I wouldn't because you see it with, you see it with the healthcare system. I mean, if you want good healthcare in the U.S., you have to pay for it yourself, right? If you want to go to a good doctor, you have to pay it out of pocket. But you see, there are those people that choose, right? So for me, I would rather choose to pay for an out-of-pocket good doctor than to be plugged into a system where I'm going to have a mediocre doctor who might tell me something that's wrong. And your mind could run away with a misdiagnosis, and then you're fucked. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Because then you're just going down the rabbit hole, and you might not even need to. How many stories do we hear about misdiagnosis in the U.S. these days? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not even sure if it's because the doctors don't know in the, or, or if it's that they're just overwhelmed. They are in the pocket of the pharmaceuticals, the drug companies and the insurance companies. Yeah. Which is of course the insurance company. Yeah. The insurance right. companies go, well, you can only do this and you, you yeah. have to see this many patients. And I remember hearing about nurses, uh, Say that they have to see a certain number of patients a certain number of times every hour. Yeah. What, what kind of care are you going to get? How are you going to diagnose them if you don't ask, ask the questions? Like, yes. like random doctor yeah. shows. And, <laughs> you know, no, you see the you see that they talk about in some of those shows that. Uh, oh well, you didn't find out that they were you know cleaning out underneath their sink and there was bug spray, whatever. And, you know, they ended up diagnosing them with something crazy, but they were just having a, a, a reaction to yeah. uh, bug poison. And then, so they do all this crazy stuff. So, but I find if that you don't have enough time. Yeah. But I would probably challenge that one. And the reason why I say that I challenge it completely because then let's take it back to the school system, right? Let's be realistic. Overwhelmed, maybe, but let's also go down to brass tacks about being lazy or being kind of deliberately not doing your best. Like people that are just doing about students or or teachers or faculty, med students, faculty, all of them. Like let's, I mean, it's it's a perpetrated system, right? So let's say you have a student come in that wants to work really hard, but his teacher or professor is like meh, right? So what happens? The student inevitably becomes a product of its environment. So if no one else is working hard, they're like meh. Okay, I don't have to work hard. But it's why you see such top schools out there that are charging such a top dollar. But have you noticed there are also those same schools that Americans can't even get into anymore because they're now providing education tourism to China. Which Mm -hmm. means the Chinese are actually taking a lot of those seats in Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, not Dartmouth, but like Cornell, because they're paying $150,000 per year. It might be a little exaggerated, but they're paying like four or five, ten times the amount that a, an in-state student would pay. Yeah. So they're taking that seat. and But also the internationals are taking it because they know we have a high level, high standard of higher education. Notice how I'm quantifying that. High level of higher education, which is at the collegiate level, the grad level. I didn't say high school. I didn't say middle school. Because those have a whole different criteria. Well, I think, isn't that also, I mean, you could go all the way back to the reason, you know, 
you have with the medical malpractices is because if the doctor's attitudes are the way they are. It started when they were children and yeah. the school system in general. You, we could go off on a whole tangent about totally we did go American on school systems. But. <laughs> we could go down many, many little mini tirades and rampages that kind of trickle off of like a lifestyle component, which is why I'm, I keep on bringing it to the overarching umbrella. Because in life, what do you do? You go to school to educate yourself or you find an education system, right? You feed yourself, you clothe yourself, you get your basic needs met, right? That is what you want to get the most optimal living that you could have. So you're going to look at your environment. You're going to look at, you know, your, who you surround yourself with, what you surround yourself with. So you're going to, you're really going to get present to a lot of that, right? And that's really what I am a stand to help people do, which is why this is why I, I went down this path because it's only recently that I had a couple of yoga students that were like, Aim, you just got to do this. Why? Because I'm caught up in the system. You know, I'm caught up in a system that is potentially paying teachers that are more Instagram worthy, more money, instead of recognizing the quality and service of a, of a more tenured teacher. You know, so, so it's the same thing probably happening in any education facility, right? They're looking at like, uh, what I say, bad instructors, um, putting out bad instructors to turn profit, you know, putting mm-hmm. out bad teachers to turn profit. You know, it's, 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 it's an investment model. You so know, it, what, what is it if somebody is looking for a yoga instructor, what is it that they should be looking for so they don't end up with a cooker cutty? Cooker cutter, cookie cutter. Yeah, there you go. Yes, um, <laughs> uh, right out of the box, um, generic. You know, they just basically they tell you what you want to know. They, they, the Instagram uh, yoga teachers that you're talking about. What what should they look for to find uh, to know that they found a good one? Well, one of the things that I would probably say has to be done now. I'd say about two decades ago you, or more, you could have found a yoga teacher very easily that was good. Now, you know, the biggest hack that I tell my students a lot, and I encourage them to do this, I encourage them to try different teachers and take like introductory specials in a lot of places to not commit to a space until they have found at least two teachers that are consistent. So two answers in one. Try a lot of the intros because it's going to take a while to find a good teacher nowadays. Um, two, look for consistency. Three, don't be afraid to go to someone that's older. Don't be afraid to go to an older yoga teacher. Don't be, don't be, um, don't shy away from like the 50, 60 year old teacher that's teaching in this unassuming place. Don't shy away from them because there's a wisdom in their age that you, you're gonna, that we're going to lose. And it's already being lost, right? So part of what's happening, what's driving people to go to yoga is that they can't sit with themselves. A society has gotten too fast. But not only that, not every person that goes to yoga needs the same type of yoga. Because some people, some people's personalities are like wild horses. They need to be tamed. Like you would tame a mare, you know, a stallion, when he's trying to go for the women horses, you would pull his reins back. And you would keep on pulling his reins back till he knew you were the you were his rider. 
I don't know if you're aware of with horses, you have to do that. Male horses with the stallion, you have to pull back on their reins quite frequently because they want to go after the female mares. So you have to really pull them back and really with firm intention and with firmness. And then at some point they're going to let out steam and they're going to be angry and they're going to be frustrated, but they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to bow to you at some point because you've pulled them into reins. Now, if you take that analogy and apply it to a yoga class, it's the same sort of thing. You don't necessarily want a teacher that's going to sit there and be like, oh, you could rest in child's pose all you want. You know, because, I'm, you know, there's a level where you now have a lot of yoga well, students as well. Pose. What was that? What about corpse pose? Can I, can I rest in corpse pose for a long time? I'm going to kick your ass. I swear to God. I can't even believe you brought that up. No. It's like, what's wrong with you? No, I'm teasing. Actually, funny enough, corpse pose. That's my favorite pose. It's I do that every, one very well. Okay, it's everyone's favorite pose, even mine. After a really good, strong class, you that is the purpose of a class. So when I started many moons ago, Shavasana was supposed to feel like you were resting, meaning Shavasana should feel like, oh my God, I just finished 80 minutes and I just want to die. But not in a bad way, in a way that now in the last 10 minutes of the class, your body's going to um, process all those asanas. And it's going to take a scan and it's going to make all those cells kind of go back to where they need to be. It's going to line your cellular body. But this you miss out now because everyone's churning the classes. And Shavasana is such a, an experience to be felt within. And when a student comes in, Shavasana is something that is such an honor of the practice because it's at the point in time where the student could release whatever, is, whatever they're holding on to and whatever. And I've seen it all. But the thing is, is that that is a time for you to let things go and leave it on the mat so that you could come back into your life and say, okay, I could, I could handle this. I, could, I have some freedom that's opened up in my mind and in my body, and I could handle this now. But that has been lost because we've made it exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, we've made it something exercise, but then, you know, this is why lifestyle is important to me because it's about function. It's about movement. It's about epigenetics. It's about, it's about neurogenetics. It's about all of it combined together. As we said before, it's all interconnected. So even to the context of our work life, our personal life, you know, our sex life, our business interactions, our family life with our, our parents, our, our cousins and everything it's all interconnected but if you recognize who you are being is what will be reflected back to you so i always tell my students which i love dearly and they make me a better teacher because they 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 do the work they do the work on the mat and they don't they they listen they don't expect it to be great but they know that i'm i'm very transparent and i'm very i'm there for them and they also know that i I will keep it light and airy and they know I go on my mini yoga rampages in class. Why I get a lot of very, very diverse people coming to class. You know, I mean, I get people that are coming visiting from out of the country. I get CrossFit guys. I get um, dancers. I get actors, you know I mean? It's just, I get everyone, but in my, in my classes, everyone is the same. Like there's no special treatment, right? Everyone is the same. And they make me proud because they know that I'm doing it because I'm hard on them because I know that they are in their own way. 
So, and, so what is it that the lifestyle, lifestyle catalyst, catalyst part of it? Part of it. Like, where does like, that, where that? They they come in. They, they see you. Everyone is one. Um, what sets you apart on the yoga mat? <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably say it comes from an energetic perspective. You know, I know Adam, I, I can wait to go on a little rampage with Adam about spirituality. That would be kind of one of my interesting conversations with him because there is a level where someone who is seeking, the student will show up, the, the teacher shows up when the student's ready. So the way I teach, when the student's ready to learn, that person will continue to come back. What makes me a distinction from them, quite frankly, is probably the tenure. And I'm my own calling card um, in terms of practicing what I preach to the best that I can. So it's not just about them coming in and taking a yoga class. I ask them about their life. I, I connect with them. And I'm not afraid to ask questions that will probe deeper. Like in Netherlands, it's really interesting because it's Northern Europe. So they're quite, you know, they're, they're not necessarily so open to discuss things with strangers, right? So to them, I'm a stranger because I'm not Dutch. But to my yoga students, we're all international. So they like the fact that I care about their life and that I'm watching their practice. And what distinguishes me is that capability because it's so natural to me. And it's like Dharma Mitra in New York, uh, you know, teaching is one of my dharmas. In the Buddhist, thing, in the Buddhist uh, faith, dharma is your, one of your life paths. Dharma is a life path, right? So teaching is one of my life paths. And to be, you know, you could train a lot of teachers, but I think as you know, probably if you've gone to school in different parts of the U.S., you know, there's a difference between that teacher that really goes out for you. And you know where you see this a lot? And, and I think Adam would probably chime in. In many of these inner cities where many of the minorities don't have people supporting them. And the teachers in the schools are out there to fight for them to get good grades. And they push them. And they're hard on them. But they're not doing it because they're angry with them. They're doing it because they believe in them. And they're a stand to see them succeed. So we could, tie, we could tie that back in with uh, everything, everything that we've talked about is yeah. it boils down to caring and yeah. empathy, compassion, emotional intelligence. Yeah. And um, yeah, for those of you who don't know, we had talked about emotional intelligence uh, before the podcast. And, we talked about a lot of things. Sure. We talked about a lot of things. We can but, have a series going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, it really does boil down to um, whether it's medical, whether it's yoga, whether it's life, uh, school, it boils down to caring, love for human beings and, and a, a, yeah. an actual interest in another Growth. human being. Uh, yeah. And we had, t we had talked about previously that a uh, big part of growing up is understanding who you are, like going Correct. into who you are. Um, is a, mental, a mental maturity. Yeah. And so I, I think that's an important aspect in order to be able to know who other people are. If you don't know who you are, um, how, how do you dive deep in to find out who somebody else is? Totally. So I agree a hundred percent. And I think that's the massive 
you know, with the advent of social media and with all of the internet, we're becoming disconnected from being able to connect at that level because the deepness is coming across as, whoa, this is too intense. Whoa, this is too overwhelming. Well, you what? stop, you, you kind of stop asking questions because, and in some aspects you feel like, you know, already, I think it's easy to look through people's look through your Facebook feed and see everything that's going on and go, Oh, well, I know how they're doing. They just made an update. So you don't have yeah. to ask anymore. Yeah, but you see, that's also a bit stupid, right? Because let's be realistic. Yeah. If you think about how many people are lying and yeah. hiding behind their status updates when they're actually so hurt and so troubled and so sad. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, so... I that's, mean, why I like the, hear... that's why I like the tribe, the way, the way we have the tribe set up. It's I'm a closed totally group, I so... That. I people, love that. People feel that they can, they can be themselves and... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really fascinating because I lost one of my teachers to suicide mm. um, because I'm, I'm also um, a Tantra coach. And one of the teachers that I really, really respected quite a bit, she committed suicide. And it was a shock to the whole community. Um, she did it about maybe four months ago. Beautiful woman, totally top of her life. Really devastated all of us we didn't see it coming none of us and you would never have known it from anything it was a shock to the whole community wow. and that that is what's that is why i'm a stand to push people even if they don't they get upset with me because i would rather you get angry at me fight it open it up don't talk to me fine don't talk to me but i guarantee you within a month two months six months a year i'm going to hear from you again and that's okay because sometimes you need that catalyst, that chemical reaction to push you. And I, and I know that some people have a 50-50 on Tony Robbins, but he's someone I, I, I respect and admire for several things that he does. Because one of the things that he uses is he uses direct language to cause impact. Because some people, you can't speak to them in a certain manner where they're going to register with how your tonality and your conversation doesn't fall into their ears doesn't fall into their listening. So he does do and use language for shock value to wake someone up. Do you see what I'm saying? He does it to wake them up. He doesn't do it to hurt people. He does it to yeah. shake it up. You know what I'm saying? Because that is a neuro, that is a neuro technique. So if you talk about neuro, neuropsychology, neurotherapy, you know, neuro, this is part of the techniques. You know, this is it. This is part of the ability to sit there and say, okay, how do I get an impact from someone? How do I try to, how do I um, ruffle their feathers so that I can get them to speak up or to take massive action or make their move? Do you know what I'm saying? That's, that's what it is. It's like, what is going to be the catalyst to kick you and kick your ass into high gear? Are you going to wait for someone to commit suicide? Or are you going to wait till you're, till you're addicted to a drug? Are you going to wait till you're um, beaten up by your partner or your spouse, when are you going to do that? When are you going to do it? Are you going to wait for when you've already hit that limit where you can't turn back? You know, I mean, like I posted in the tribe of change um, that I was, a vic I was, I'm a survivor of, um, of a crime in New York city when I was younger. And you'd never know it unless I said it. Because we talked about this too, right? It's like yeah. about being present to not making meaning, but to just recognize that it was a moment in time 
that is not happening now. But we keep on reliving it by the neuro patterns in our brain and neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you constantly keep on bringing it forward, if you constantly keep on hanging out with those people that are going to keep on bringing it up, but not now I'm going to give a disclaimer. The ones that are not bringing it up in a constructive way. Because there are two types of ways that people bring things up. They'll either bring it up like, oh, they'll be like, you're an ass. You don't know what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. Like judging you, right? Or they'll bring it up in a way that it may sound like they're judging you, but they're genuinely trying to give you some suggestions on how you could do something. They're genuinely trying to work it out with you, but you may not be into their listening just yet and vice versa. So for me, mm. it's fascinating because being in the context of yoga lifestyle, which deals with all facets of life, you know, even in business startups, we talk about business startups, but no one talks about sex. No one talks about the impact of intimacy and sexual relations on your business, on your ability to perform. No one talks about it. Because we, we're, you know, the United States is, is locked up in a society that, I mean, we have probably the largest pedophilia. I mean, we have the largest uh, crimes around sex in the U.S. I mean, and you wonder why, right? Yeah. Do you wonder why? I mean, it's yeah. kind of obvious, right? If you, with, if you withhold someone from having something, what happens? They want it more. And they'll go underground to get it. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where that stems from. I know that uh, you can withhold that from me, and I don't want it. Yeah, but you, you, know, what I, you know what I'm talking about, though. It's like when you look at, like, so, for example, if you, look at, um, if you look at the trafficking that's going on between here and, like, Southeast Asia, you know, most of the customers are Westerners. You know, I mean – when you even look at a country like Bali now that's super beautiful or what is super beautiful, but was more beautiful before, but now it's becoming like a tourist trap. Like now everyone wants to go to Bali because it's the fatty, it's the fad thing to do. You know, it's a trendy thing to do is to go to Bali, but no one's looking at all the plastic and all of the tourism crap and garbage that we're putting out there that we're damaging it. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, where does it all boils back? Where does that stem from? That stems from also your childhood, your growth, how you were raised. You know, Bruce Lipton talks about that we're programmed between zero and seven years old. And I agree with that philosophy. I believe that whatever we do as adults was ingrained in us between zero and seven. Well, I feel like, I feel like as a society, we've gone from living to producing. Like, I feel like a couple hundred years ago, people just lived and they grew their food and they yeah. took care of their animals and ate their animals and yeah. they worked it's for the sake of survival. Um, and then we turn into the industrial age where we started producing and then people started making money in order to buy things that they weren't able to produce and people stopped growing food and stopped taking care of animals and they let a handful of people do that while they built cars and trucks and boats and totally get that. And that's so, kind of, that's a bit what's sad, you know, because in the context of expansion, we've expanded so much that it's only logical. We're going to contract. So you have this expansion that's happened already and it's just gone too far. 
And now what I see happening in my observation, in my opinion, is that now it's going like this. So now it's coming in. So now people are like, wait a second. You know, I think what's going on in the world right now is actually really good. Because I think it's giving us an opportunity to rebuild, to reset, and to take into consideration that which is the most important to us. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with society uh, if more people take on a minimalist lifestyle. If we start seeing more people get rid of possessions and belongings and Mm -hmm. because then what, what happens, what happens when you don't have everyone buying everything? Then you have have a lot of power. Yeah. But then that also means all those people who are producing will now be out of work. Like it'll be interesting to see what happens to the economy if that were to happen. If tomorrow everybody just kind of cut off. Well, so from a perspective of having done, so from a financial perspective, from like a strategic perspective, we are moving towards a service economy. It's already happening, which means it's no longer going to be a production economy. We're, we're not in a growth economy. We're in a service economy. We can't grow anymore. We are putting ourselves into graves. We can't grow anymore. Even, you know, this is even my whole philosophy on having children. I, I, I think they're amazing. I think there's an absolutely, I think it's beautiful. I have an amazing niece and nephew. I love them to bits. They're, they're my joy. And I'm okay with that. You know, I also recognize that how many years ago we were like 4 billion. Now the world is at almost 10. You know, at some point, children are actually raised when we were younger for the pre-industrial stage. They were raised to work on farms and do child labor, which everyone's whinging about child labor, but let's be realistic. And now I can really down, go down the socioeconomic model. Children were there to work on a farm. Mm-hmm. They were there to help support the family. They, that is not child labor. But now we have a different point of view in a society that sees that child labor is unjust. And I'm like, whoa, 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 rewind. Before you're saying it's unjust, do a case study on Southeast Asia. Do a case study on Vietnam, Cambodia. Do a case study on those regions. They need to work to make money. They need, oh. to, they need to contribute to their household. Yeah, I saw, a, uh, I saw some post on Facebook that talked about uh, this guy was doing a, a a speech talking about child labor and um, just uh, low wages talking about how in America we complain and say like, Oh, these people only make a dollar a day or 85 cents a day. And this is horrific conditions. And then he, he pauses and he goes, do you realize that without that job, they would be making nothing a day and that 85 cents or that dollar a day that they are making is feeding their family and clothing their children and the kids who are working making 85 cents a day or a dollar a day, that's actually helping the rest of their family that they wouldn't have, that they would die of malnutrition and because they don't have anything. See, I think the part of it that, you know, I noticed with what you just said, which is spot on, right? There is the other side of that where think about the emotional component of being around society, being connected with a, a group of community. So there's also the level where they might not have made friends or had more people to interact with. 
if they weren't doing it. You know what I'm saying? Like there's also an empathetic component in community working in these places that they work with peers their own age. So they yeah. end up having, they end up working with people and communities where they get to know each other. I think Whereas, the, real, the real bad part comes in when you, when you then get into working conditions. I think that's where that the, the big totally problem. Agree. Yeah. But that you could blame that we could, not putting blame, but that observation I'd probably take to the bigger companies like Nike, uh, Primark, you know, H&M, you know, many of those companies, they're all producing They're all producing in those regions. I mean, they're all producing. So when you said about consumerism, I mean, like, let's be realistic. Let's look at our favorite person. And everyone could high five this one being cheeky. Mark, uh, uh, Facebook. Zuckerberg. He wears it. Yeah, yeah, he makes he wears the same clothes. I well, don't see him. That that you can say about they, all of the uh, the famous. All of the very wealthy people wealthy. are not. They all the super rich people are not spending a lot of money on consumerism. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're well, letting everyone. Um, Steve Jobs, who uh, always wore a turtleneck, black turtleneck, and jeans. That was. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't have time to pick out fashion. I don't, you know, I put on clothes to be covered and then I go. (laughs) And I think there's a level where it's like, you know, you have a, you have, um, it goes back to, you know, the psychology, right. And limited beliefs and self-love and self-worth and aligning yourself with the Joneses. You know what I'm saying? Like if she wears it or he wears it, I have to wear it. Or, you know, he has that car. I have to have that car. He has that job. I have to have that job. There's there's too much of that comparison, and comparison is the death of anyone. It just is. It's like so. We're, so we're we're say just, those people, say those people, that person that you just described comes into you mm-hmm. at your studio, and mm-hmm. they say, "I need help," and they just laid out, "This is what you know. I've got this going on. This and this yeah. and this." How do you? What do you do? How do you help them to get out of that? First of all, I get, well, first of all, I'm grateful that they show up because that's part of the process, right? Is getting them to show up. So they've already come through the door and that's a big deal right there. At that point, it's about making a connection with them. Yeah. They just, they just laid all that out. Yeah. And then it's about connection. Now. Yeah. So now it's really about, now it's really about connecting with them in the context that just recognizing and acknowledging those things that they're sharing with you, that it was hard for them to share those things. It isn't easy to share so vulnerably with someone that's a stranger, but it could be for some, it can't be for others. Okay. So it's, it's 50, 50, Mm -hmm. but it's also like once they're there and they've shared, they're letting their guard down for help. And at that point, they're doing the work. So once they go through the class, usually those individuals, they come and tell me privately once they feel the connection, they'll share and they'll spill the whole thing, right? Which I'm truly blessed for because I know that I've had a couple of students that have started with me that like I've seen them a year later and I'm so humbly impressed by how far they've come. you know. And they make me proud in a good way because they can't always see their transformation, but I can and that's part of what happens. A lot of this, they can't see. They could feel it in their body, but in their life, maybe they're still in the same job. Maybe they're still with the same, maybe they're struggling in their relationship, but then the relationship falls away. 
You know what I'm saying? Maybe they were struggling with their job and then the job falls away. And in hindsight, they may think that by the relationship falling away, it was a negative. But in actuality, it might have been the positive. Mm-hmm. That the relationship or the job needed to fall away, but because we hold on so tight, we hold on so tight to that certainty, it well, gives no breathing. That fear of, that fear of loss. That uh, Yeah. Yeah, abandonment, the whole nine yards. I mean, it all rolls into one place, right? But yoga is a holistic practice that works on the largest um, organ in your body, which is your skin. Your skin is your largest organ, and no one ever really realizes that. But the only thing that works out your skin is yoga. So it's really fascinating. No one knows that. So when you look at the lymphatic system, lymphatic drainage, why you see so many thin yoga yogis when they're really practicing a lot, there's something really interesting about when you see thin yoga teachers. What one doesn't recognize is that the back in the day, the thin yoga teachers were the ones that were really practicing yoga. Because when you really practice yoga, the mind calms down and most of our eating is emotional. So once the mind levels out, what starts to happen? Weight starts to fall away. Cortisol levels go back. Joints get more mobility. Heart rate goes to a level that's balanced. Nervousness goes away. Eczema goes away. Anxiety diminishes. Panic reduces. Do you see what I'm saying? So like you you see that it's a holistic healing system and people are like, ah, whatever. But also, ironically, look, I get a lot of the guys that are from fitness as well. Because I had first started, um, when, I, when I first started teaching Hatha Yoga, I was teaching at a powerhouse gym, which is like Gold Gym. So I was teaching at like 6 a.m. in the morning before every one of the strength guys came in and started dropping the dumbbells on the floor. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, but they would yeah. sneak into the class early in the morning. So they wouldn't tell their peers, right? But I would get a lot of these muscle, really big guys coming in to take yoga for an hour from 6 to 7 a.m before anyone saw them. So it's really fascinating because they truly understood the value of it, but they didn't want people to see them. So it's, it's an interesting thing. We've come a long way, but you've, we've lost a lot of the stronger teachers. But there is a resurgence of the stronger teachers bubbling up right now because some of us are going online, which I'm in the process of doing, is putting my stuff online as well. Some of us are going online. Some of us are now moving to the more... Uh, retreats and workshops. So you said, how do I continue with them? I continue with them with by offering weekend retreats, weekend programs that are around nutrition, lifestyle coaching, mentoring, um, just you know, hacking your hacking your flow state. So it's a bit like um, stealing fire and the flow genome project. It's actually really getting into these exercises that create your body to move to create movement in your body so that emotion changes you. It makes you move because most of what's happening is we're getting stuck in front of a TV. We're getting stuck in front of a computer. We're getting, uh, you know, analysis paralysis by analysis. We're thinking too much, but we're not um, living. Mm-hmm. We're thinking too much, but we're not living. You know, like what I did years ago, not a lot of people I think would take that leap of faith these days because they're scared. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, Hmm. What are you scared of? You know what my philosophy was? If it didn't work out, I could always go back home. Yeah. Well, simple. I, the, uh, I think that goes back to, you know, the, the fear that we had talked about earlier. Um, the, they're afraid of a lot of different things. They're afraid of 
what if I fail? People are, I, I, I don't understand, but people are afraid of failure or they don't have someone, you know, they don't have a home to go back to. So it's easier to stay in the, the bad that you know than to risk mm-hmm. going to the, the bad that you don't know or even considering the, uh, the amazing that could be there. I think mm-hmm. it's much easier to sit in complacency than for some people uh, than to risk which is, it's sad, but unfortunately that's, you know, and then, then we are uh, a society that does like to make excuses. Hence why I said I'm kind of a kick in your door yoga teacher, because I'm so <laughs> tired of the pansy excuses. I'm like, suck it up, buttercup. I mean, uh, like, let's be I don't good. have, the, I don't have the money. I don't have the time. Oh my, oh my God. I I don't have the money. I don't have the time. I, you know, I, you know, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Oh my goodness. I mean, like I could write a list of the excuses I hear. I'm like, Oh my God, you know, you all, it's just scary because it's like, you know, like really, could you listen to yourself? Tape yourself because you, you, you sound like, you know, this, this level, not you, but you know, universally you, um, it's like you start to see this and it becomes a habitual emotional addiction. So the phrase is an emotional addiction, which means I don't have time. Well, it's easier to say I don't have time than go into the murk of uncertainty, isn't it? It's easier to say because you know what to expect after you say you don't have time. But you're making yourself right. Think about that. You're making because nothing's happening if you don't have time, right? So you're going to validate yourself that you're not good enough, right? Because you're just going to perpetrate it. Because you're going to say, okay, well, I don't have the time to do it, so I'm not going. I'm not successful. Okay, well, make time to practice. No, well, you know, I don't have time. I can't make time. Okay, well, then you're validating you're not able to practice and you can't develop your skills because you don't make time. So yeah. take responsibility for it. I also like the. Um, I've heard this before. Re- reframing when you say you don't have time uh, for, for something like that, like, Oh, you should, you know, you need to work out or you need to go do yoga. And then if somebody goes, Oh, I don't have time. The response can be something as simple as, isn't it sad that you don't have an hour to yourself to do one thing to make your life better? Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised because even when you say that, like, for example, um, I'm a plant-based personal chef, you know, and I do consulting around plant-based. I'm a holistic coach. I'm board certified in the U.S. Uh, I mean, I'm a yoga therapist. So granted, many of those products in hourly rate are fairly, they're up there. Okay, they're up there at the price of a therapist, right? Tantra is about triple that. (laughs) But my point is, is that it's interesting when, Someone says, oh, well, I don't have the money. Because that's usually the one that I always find fascinating. Because it's always like, I don't have the money. But let me ask you a question. Are you, what's going to happen when you have a sickness, God forbid, that's going to cost you 40 times the amount that you blew off? Mm-hmm. The preventative. So it's, yeah, because it's preventative versus post. Like what we have in the United States is, you know, every, no one practices. Now you're seeing more people practice preventative medicine, but many years it was like, you know, just give them a pill because people are afraid to feel pain. Mm -hmm. 
You know, people are afraid to feel pain. You know, when I looked at it, I mean, it's really interesting. I had a flu for the first time in like 15 years. I had the flu and it wasn't even that I got it in Netherlands. I bought it back from the U.S. And it basically sat in my system until I got back here. And then I was, oh man, I was fighting it. I was fighting it. I was fighting it. Well, that's good because we need you to take it over there because we don't need it over here. (laughs) Exactly. Like, take it with you. But it's funny because I was fighting, I was battling it. And then like literally... I was done in five days. I was done in five days. The battle was five days. But in those five days, I went straight to what my grandmother taught me and my father taught me. Chicken broth, like bone broth, um, tea, honey, lemon, ginger, um, cayenne pepper, just no solid foods, just liquids. Because your strongest system that takes the most energy out of your body is digestion. So if you are sick, First free advice I'd give you is starve it. You know what I'm saying? Just drink tea. Polyphenols are in green tea and, and black tea. Polyphenols. Ginger. Antimicrobial poppers in ginger. Um, lemon. You could eat the whole thing. Grind it into the, into the mix. You can eat the skin because it's, it, it's, um, it's alkalizing you hardcore. Uh, what else? Um, honey. Raw honey. Take it under your tongue. It's got antibacterial properties in it. I mean... We got to take it old school. We got to go back to old school. Got to go back to what your grandparents taught you. Because witchcraft burner. Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say that. Burn the witch. (laughs) Don't say that, man. We're gonna have like a second. Does she float? (laughs) What is she doing over there? Wait, I wait a second. Does she float? Um, That's from Life of Brian. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. What else floats? Small pebbles, rocks. <laughs> go, go. No, it's it, it's yeah. funny, though, because it is going back to taking it to the bare essentials, right? Like you said, if we gave away, if we took away consumerism and we just went brass tacks, right, to the bare essentials, come on, I go camping. I love camping. You know what I'm saying? People look at me like, oh, but she looks like, no, I lived in a city, but I I'm totally love Colorado. I've it's done called, the Appalachian. It's called Rich People Homeless. That's that's what What's camping your- is. It's rich people making fun of homeless people. <laughs> I'm gonna go visit your home, but I'm gonna bring another home with me <laughs> and mock you. That's pretty interesting though, because now they have glamping. Glamping. Oh yeah. I'm gonna take a smaller version of my house and electronics. Yeah, and exactly. Charge. It's called glamping. It's called glamping. I'm just gonna spend the night on a hard not a hard service because it has a blow up mattress. <laughs> Um, I'm going to show you what you wish you could have and then I'm going to leave and then pack it all up and put it in my garage, um, and do it, uh, in next month. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't get that, I, I, but it's glamping. It's like, but then there are those individuals that like will say that they want something. And I, I tend to wonder if they've experienced it or maybe they need to do that sort of, what is it in Colorado? They do that, um, back Weed. roads of that. I know that for sure, but I'm in Amsterdam, so we're n- no comments, no comments, no mm-hmm. comments. Um, it's new for Colorado, though. Colorado loves it. But what I was going to describe there was is you just see how all of what they're doing now is like maybe – do you remember those backroads kind of uh, adventures or those backroads programs or those – the programs where they would give you like a compass – uh-huh. And they'd put two people to go find their way and then they'd separate you and come back 
for you like in four hours later to see if you could find your way out? Yeah. It's outward bound. I think it's called outward outward bound journeys. I think they do them in Colorado or in the mountains or something like that. And it's basically like um, an experiential experience where you you get put with someone and you get a map and a compass or something like that, and you have a flashlight. But then you have to work with each other to get out. Like many so kind of like yeah, exactly. But it actually it shows efforts of team, um, mm-hmm. yeah, just efforts of being able to connect, you know, with another being to help, help you along so you could both survive as opposed to like, I feel like that would end up being like a school group project where there's one person who has to do all the work and the other person like phones it in. Don't even get me started on school group projects because I did an MBA here in Netherlands. And let me tell you, man, one of our, one of the, individuals that was in one of our groups actually almost got us tossed out for plagiarism because he was from another country and he felt borrowing word for word from a a case study, a financial case study was okay. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I get it. I was like, so you're basically putting risk your other group members because of your choice of borrowing language. And I, I was just like, wait a second, this, and it's so funny because there are individuals that just don't get that plagiarism is not, ethical and again it goes back to the petri dish you come from right Mm -hmm. or the culture you come from and how they what they have is their values and where it is that it trickles down in their society yeah i've probably been looking down at my laptop most of this time because i see the little light up there but i'm like always looking down so yeah no it looks like it looks like you're kind of looking at me but I, I have the same thing. My light is way up there. and Yeah, my light's like way up here. Woo! Yeah, way. Oh, yeah. Way, way over here, and I just covered it. Oops. But, yeah, so, I mean, it's very fascinating because it's what inspired me to kind of go down this lifestyle catalyst path because I still do freelance work and contract work and stuff that I do around social media and marketing and, you know, sort of, funnels and Google AdWords and stuff like that. I still do like the technical work that I love. I'm a data junkie. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, recovering gamer. <laughs> I, used to love my, I, I was a gamer. Um, now video, it, video or uh, like Dungeons and Dragons, like board game stuff. Dude, like both of them. Dungeon, D&D was my <laughs> favorite board game. D&D was my favorite board game. And that's like, I mean, we go down that path as well, man. It's like, remember the board games, like where it actually, we used our brains. What? That's our imagination. You can't do that anymore. That's against the law. I think they'll put a fine on you here in the United States if you do that. Baseball. Baseball. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'll have to be uh, board games. That'll have to be a separate topic. We'll just uh, have a, we'll just have to get all the tribe of chains favorite board games. Maybe that's what we'll do. One of these uh, tribe of change. We'll, like we'll just have a, a giant group chat and we'll all have like little figures and I don't know, we'll, we'll figure out a game. Maybe we'll make a, a, a YouTube line <laughs> <laughs> tribe of change game. So it'd be kind of funny. Yeah. Well, we have been talking for over an hour now and uh, wow, that's so not surprised. <laughs> I, the first conversation, I think we talked like two and a half hours, three hours. Yeah, I think it was like that. But so last thing to wrap yes. it up, what would you 
what would you tell someone who, you know, what, what's something you want to leave the, the tribe with uh, based on everything that we've talked about? What's a piece of advice, something you want them to know, whatever. I would probably, I would probably, I'd probably say just ask me the questions that you want to know if you want to know more about yoga. And if there's something that might be in your life that you're, I'm not going to say struggling with because we're all growing, right? So something that, something that has you questioning what your next step would be or where you could find some, some opening and just kind of drop a message. Put a, put a note down and or send me a message on Facebook. But also um, something that I'm super passionate about is I think there's also, uh, you know, I'm curious to know what a lot of the Tribe of Change members do because I also think there's a large number, I think the percentage we talked about, there was more men than women. I think sure. there was a higher percentage of men in the group. And I'm quite curious, and I think I'd probably leave them with a little dangling carrot of a next potential chat. I'd be curious to what, um, if I if I mention the word yoga and tantra together, what are the first things that sort of come to your mind, and where is it that? Because we talked about some touching things in the, in the group, and I'm an advocate to have positive conversations and to bring them to the surface in a very safe and respectful environment. So I'm kind of open to like sort of having a dialogue around that and seeing where we can learn and grow and maybe um maybe heal some stuff you know maybe you know in in honor of one of my late teacher it's really about you know going down paths that maybe we're afraid to talk about in a form that we can Mm -hmm. and yeah so feel free ask me random questions i'm always good with them so but definitely get to a yoga mat get to a yoga mat get to a yoga mat and just look for consistency. Don't be afraid of an older teacher. Like, you know, they could be fun. Just don't expect, just go in with an open mind. But also take advantage of all those intros because that's how you're going to hack the system to find those good teachers because the cost of the classes are going up. So yeah. there you go. So that's it. Consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, get a yoga mat. Consistency. Yes. So that means nothing but corpse pose. For me, oh. consistently doing pose, pose. That's how I'm gonna hack the uh, the yoga. And I um, would invite everyone to check out Dr. Joe Dispenza's uh, work on YouTube. His his work on meditation and the quantum mechanics and neuro. It's really fascinating and it's really easy to learn. He's a really easy teacher. He's good friends with Bruce Lipton and Greg Braden. So I highly recommend if you have an interest in meditation and you're not interested in the quiet one, like where you're sitting in silence, go check out Dr. Joe, some of his YouTubes. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. I'm actually uh, going to be seeing him in Dublin in, in about 20 days. In three weeks, I'll be going there to see him for the Progressive Workshop. So yeah, please check, him, check out his work. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. All right, fantastic. Tribe, you can find her on the Facebook Tribe of Change group. Um, send her a message. Um, we'll be posting this on the website. And uh, thanks so much, uh, MA, for Thank you. joining us 
all the way from Amsterdam, and I'm glad we finally were able to uh, to get this recorded. I'm so excited. Now I'm going to get to watch this myself, and I'm just going to la- – this will be over popcorn. I'll be <laughs> laughing at myself. It's all good. I think I think it was a good podcast. I think uh, we, we touched on a lot of different stuff, and there's so much more we can touch on later. But uh, We've got a few more to go. Yeah. We need Thanks. to do the ones in, we need to do the ones in Spanish next. Some point. Espanol. Yes, I mentioned that briefly yeah, to Adam know. yesterday, so we'll uh we'll talk more about that, but uh thank you for joining us and uh tribe. We love you. Hope that uh you're having a fantastic day and uh hope we survive Irma. Uh you will. Those, you will. Uh, I I'm sure we will, but uh everybody take care of yourself in Florida. Make sure you yeah, uh, have all your supplies and get uh, out if you need to. Don't wait around yeah. for that. Uh, traffic is is a beast for those coming out of Miami. I've heard uh, friends of mine that are uh, six hours on the road and that they should be in Orlando by now, but they still got another two or three hours before they even hit Orlando. So stay safe, um, be safe, love one another, and tribe. We'll see you on the next one. <laughs>